Welcome back to 1A, a podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, South Carolina. 1A is a podcast designed to take a brief but in-depth look at counseling issues from a pastoral perspective. Reverend Squires is the pastor of counseling here at First Presbyterian Church, and I'm the intern for biblical counseling, Josh Adair. This is the third episode on sexuality and sexual temptation, and today Reverend Squires and I discuss a scriptural framework for understanding our sexuality. If you have any comments about our show or a question about something you hear on this episode, please don't hesitate to contact us. You can find all of our contact info on our website at firstbrezcolumbia.org. If you would like to stay updated on when a new episode is released, download our app. You can do so by searching for First Presbyterian Church of Columbia SC in the app store of your choice. We hope this ministry is a blessing to you and those around you. Let's get to the conversation. Well, welcome back to 1A. We're continuing to look at the issue of sex and sexuality. And again, joining me is Josh Adair. Josh, thanks for being with me. Thanks again, Josh, for having me. It's good to be here. Absolutely. Okay, so we talked about last time some of the ways that we currently use sex incorrectly. Yes, that was our most recent half episode, if you will. (laughs) Right, right. Half episodes that get turned into episodes. And and we really talked about it was consumerism and selfishness. Yeah, Mm -hmm. right. For sure. So now it, it would probably be helpful for us to talk maybe about what does scripture say positively? Yes, we need to we need to pivot away from the sort of shameful connotation that can come to our discussion around sexuality. Not that Scripture says shameful things about sexuality, and we need to actually begin to fill out that picture, because our first episode, we talked about the Scripture speaks really positively about sexuality. That's correct. So, Josh, that does bring up a good point. Okay. When we look at Scripture, Mm -hmm. where are some biblical places we begin to understand the positive aspects of our sexuality? Yeah. So this is an issue that Christians have faced Throughout history, sex is such a powerful motivator sure. for men and women. It, one of the reasons why the early church was tempted to asceticism, mm. to pull away from the culture, was because it was so inundated with sex and sexuality. Sure, She found it really hard to implement a good Christian sexuality. Mm-hmm while having that. So so she almost had to pull away for a little while and define it for herself. So after millennia of looking at, okay, what is it that scripture genuinely says about sex and sexuality? Not not what do we want it to say, not eisegesis, but exegesis. What does scripture in itself say mm-hmm. about sex? There really seem to be four pillars here hmm. about what sex does. Sure. Okay? And sex is a consummation of a relationship. Uh-huh. We'll talk about that here in a second. Sex is for procreation. Uh-huh. Sex helps with the relationship and intimacy, often categorized under the idea of love. Okay. And then sex is designed to be pleasurable for us to enjoy it. Yes. And it's when you overemphasize any one of those, you begin to get a misshapen view of sex and sexuality that it then shapes how you treat sex in a way that leads you down some really difficult and sometimes even dark paths. Sure. So let's talk about where the Bible would, where, where we would lean on the Bible to show us each of these four pillars. Yes, that's super helpful. That's a great way of organizing it too. Why don't yeah. we start with procreation and consummation? Yeah, procreation, consummation. So procreation, you're going to see this in Genesis 1. 
Yes. When Genesis 1, the Lord speaks to Adam and Eve, and what he says is, you are to go fill the earth and subdue it. Mm-hmm. Right? And what that is, is it's often called the cultural mandate. Sure. It's the mandate to go out there and have progeny, and those progeny have purpose. Mm-hmm. And that purpose then is to go and to tame the earth and to make the rest of the earth look like, reflect what the garden looks like. Yes. Keep in mind the garden was a place to which Adam and Eve went in order to have immediate presence with the Lord. And the image that they were made in was really an image that was, I think they say, uh, one commentator I read previously on Genesis says it's almost like a little vice regency, like they're... Little statues that are supposed to say, this is this is our God, our empire, our emperor's world sort of deal. And so if you combine that with the idea of the cultural mandate, it's the idea of you're filling the earth with the presence of the image of God, right? Correct? That's correct. Okay, good. That's correct. So when he gives that mandate, he says, go and procreate, basically. And, sure. th- and that is only viable via the route of sex and sexuality. There is no other means yes. of procreation in the species even in our current technological age we do not have the ability to to procreate without it including some sort of action of sex sure right yeah so and there's actually current ethicists who try to argue for an understanding of who we are as humans apart from any theology that would preclude transgender identities that would preclude the whole LGBT movement because they say you can't actually separate sex from procreation. Sure. There's there's no other way to understand sex outside of procreation. And these are Christian ethicists or even no, no, non-Christian secular ethicists. ethicists. Oh, wow. So okay. you, you cannot understand. It is at its very heart what it's designed to do. And, of course, this is a form or function debate, but the function sure. of sex and sexuality— is procreation. Yeah. And so that's that's what God designed us for. Yeah. That's why he designed male and female. Yeah. Part of what we do when we come together and, and join in our oppositeness sure. is the sexual compatibility that we have that we may then propagate the species. Yeah. That makes total sense. Okay. So procreation first. That, that's one of the things. Now, where this got some people sidetracked, especially historically— is you read some of the early Catholics on this, and that's the only purpose they can find Yikes. for sex. <laughs> okay. Is procreation. Well, I, I take that back. And the consummation of a marriage. Okay. The, those two. But really, they're focused on procreation. Okay. Uh, Augustine, for instance, will say that it's a shame that man must think of something other than his progeny in order to perform sexually. Right. His idea would be the the ideal way to engage in sex is only to think about your future children. So so Augustine was a guy, too, where historically he I mean, he lived with his concubine before he was a believer. That's correct. Sexual temptation, his sexuality was a big pitfall for him even before he came to faith. And so that's maybe some of the language that goes into his understanding of sex, sex, his sexuality. That's right. That brings the shame along with it, maybe. That's right. And, And the thing about Augustine to understand is that he's actually recovering some space here. Yeah. The, those who came before him, Ambrose uh, specifically, preached so intensely against sex that there were men who divorced their wives. Wow. They were happily married, but they divorced their wives because their wives were a temptation to sex. Man. And they felt like that was a sin. And so 
Can you imagine your preacher telling you that sex is so terrible and having men be convinced, okay, I, you know, even though I love my wife, yeah, living with her, I cannot imagine living with a woman and not having sex with her, and so I've got to divorce you. Yeah. Right? And so Augustine was really trying to recover some space to say, no, 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 you don't have to go divorce someone. You don't have to uh, renounce mm-hmm. sexuality completely. Yeah. But the reason sex is okay is because it produces children. Man. Because it produces progeny. That's the only thing it's there for. And any thought of, you know, the other gender in a way that made you just appreciate their form or the exercise of sex and sexuality, that was only lust. Concupiscence yeah. is the big word that would be thrown around that. Oh, wow. And you see, I think the hold of the asceticism that you're talking about on even godly men at that point, they're trying to do a good thing of deny, like deny our sinful flesh, but at the same time, to the point of exclusion of a good gift of our God. That's right, and it has a negative ramification as sure. well. Like when you go so far one way, you make what is a right impulse. Let's not make sex and sexuality what we worship, mm-hmm. and you make it a God thing. Now, now our non-sexuality is the best thing. Sure. And it is a God-mandated thing, which it never is. Yeah. All of a sudden, you are going to create a vacuum that someone will fill, that will be able to recognize, hey, actually this thing called sexuality is good. Mm. And if it's good, that means I must not be Christian, or I must have to go Mm. be somewhere else, right? And so as Christians, we want to be balanced here, and we want to be able to say there's room for sexuality to be good. Uh, so that we don't give away everything to secularism. We talked a little bit about that last time. Last time, that's mm-hmm. right. Okay, so consummation now. Now there's consummation. Uh, you'll see that in Genesis four four one, and that is immediately after the fall. The act that consummated the marriage between Adam and Eve was this act of yada. That's that's the Hebrew that is often translated no. Hmm. Adam knew his wife and she became pregnant, Mm. right? And so that act is meant to be a confirmatory act about a special relationship that is only a man and a wife who are covenantally committed together. It is... That was a mouthful. Can you repeat that again? That act is meant to be a... Wow, I don't know that I can repeat that (laughs) again. Okay, that's okay. We might just have to edit this and (laughs) replay that It like you know, 0.75 speed or something. Um, <laughs> I think it's supposed to be a confirmatory act is On what it is. A man and a woman who are in a special covenant relationship. That's right. There you go. It's It has a way of making that particular relationship special and above all other relationships. Mm-hmm. And again, Genesis makes this very clear that in Genesis 2, that a man should leave his father and mother and become one flesh with his wife, that there is a one flesh union there. Mm-hmm. And that consummation consummates, it makes it clear that that is a one flesh union. Sure. Now, people again have gone too far with this. Yes. And there are modern people who would go too far with this. Absolutely. Who would say that anytime you have sex with anyone, mm. it is basically your soul is marrying them. Yeah. Right? Another big source of shame among yes. those who've been sexually active prior to their marriage right. in their congregations. And I don't think that that is the view of Scripture. Okay. That's, where yeah. you have had people in Scripture who have been redeemed from a past of sexuality. Yeah. You think of Rahab or others— and you never get the sense that the Lord then judges them that they have 
10 husbands, 50 husbands, whatever. You just don't get that sense from Scripture. It is meant to be an act of consummation for a marriage, but in our sin, we can engage in that activity outside of that meaning, and it doesn't carry the meaning of marriage with it. Yes. The poor practice of something that's good does not mean that the practice itself is tainted. Right. With that negative practice of it, I guess you could say. Right. Right. Okay. So that would be consummation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then the next one is love. Mm. And that was really recovered during the time of the Reformation. Yeah. Up until the Reformation, you know, holy days, which took up a large portion of the calendar, were days where you were not allowed to engage in sexual activity with your spouse. Wow. Because it tainted those holy days. And so the Reformation, in its recovery of a biblical-only view of all things, recovered this idea that actually sex and sexuality creates a sort of union with each other that doesn't just result in consummation. It's a lifelong thing. Mm. The more often you are engaged in that activity with your covenantal partner, the closer you guys become, the more resilient you guys become. Sure. And so it is an act of love that is both an act of love and both increases love Mm. in those who participate in it rightly. Yes. Which is to say other-centered, not self-centered, not me fulfilling my needs, right? So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, ooh, I need to play this for my spouse so that they'll have sex with me more often. (laughs) You're listening wrong, friend. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Good rule of thumb. If you ever are sitting in church and are like, man, someone else needs to hear this, you're probably Probably. not listening like you need to. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Every time you elbow someone else, you need to elbow yourself twice. Amen. So, yeah, so I think if... Uh, if people get the sense that, okay, sex increases love and therefore someone else should be in mm-hmm. uh, doing this activity more, we need to, to parse that out. Those who serve one another sexually mm-hmm. in a non-consumer sense, it does increase the love that they have for each other. And sure. what we would look at biblically is something like Song of Solomon. Yeah. Song of Solomon is a very explicit text. Yes. Um, it describes both a man and a woman's genitalia. Yes. We do not translate it that way. No, we don't. We like to allegorize that part. We do. And we like to allegorize it because we don't want to cause people to turn red face. We don't want to bring them shame. Absolutely. And it would it would be weird as a pastor. It would be weird to preach on Song of Solomon <laughs> and to actually talk about yes. some of the things that it talks about. I, sure. I have trouble even talking about it on this podcast where I've got <laughs> nobody in front of me, you know, except my biblical counseling intern who understands. Mm-hmm. So... There's a sense in which we need to have some modesty. Sure. But that book really does have at its heart love that Mm -hmm. one person has for the other, that is willing to allow them to pursue one another through and beyond incredible circumstances. They'll go over the gates. They'll sneak behind guards. They'll run anywhere to get to one another. Yeah. Now, the beautiful thing about this is that, you know, this life is full of analogy for us. It's full of us experiencing things that are supposed to point beyond what is here to the more real, Mm. which is the eternal. Yeah. And so if you think of the love that you have as you are connected to somebody else, as you desire them, 
that same love, not, not the physical portion of it, but the desire portion of it is the same intense desire that Christ has for his people because yeah. we are his bride. Yeah, it's right. the same love. We're reading a book right now, Grace and Glory, in our internship program, and it's a collection of Gearhardt's Voss sermons, and it's the same love. He references a passage in Hosea, Hosea 14, that in a young couple anticipates the joy and young love of being together with which our Savior longs to be with us. Right, right. That's, that's, that's beautiful. It is. And it, what it does is it also helps, like some people... They run away from this particular portion mm. of a relationship, that early infatuation piece where they're sure. so excited because they've seen other people get burned by it, make poor decisions because of it. Mm. And so, and I think especially in the Christian American, we've seen people make bad decisions. And so we've gone to an anti sentimentality kind of position. Yeah. That's something to push past sure. so you can make a wise business decision about whether or not you should marry this person. Hmm. And if you do that, you are missing the fact that that's Jesus feels about you with that same intense burning desire, uh, infatuation, love peace. Yes. And so you, you aren't going to be able to draw on that when you think about Christ someday, you hmm. know, it's not something to be, it's, it's something to be tamed. It's not something to be hmm. uh, run away from. Yeah, right. it's a form of attachment that you can't, like, you can't really get past the fact of being, it's almost like you're trying to get fast, past the fact that you're attached to someone else, right. and they meet a need in your soul, right. like, in a good and godly way, yeah. and you can't be mercenary about that. Right. So. So, love, right? Love, the, the, yeah. Sex is designed in order to increase love in Song of Solomon. They will declare their love to each other. They will talk about being drunk with each other's love, mm. right? It's a very, very loving book. Uh, but that leads to the last one as well, which is pleasure. Yes. Because Song of Solomon is a very erotic book and a book that speaks of pleasure more than any book in the Bible. Mm. And so... Sex is meant to be pleasurable. Now, that mm. is a lost doctrine hmm. inside of Western Christianity. Sure. We are so afraid of the pleasure of sex because the pleasure of sex can get you to some really bad places. And yeah. you can easily, it's so pleasurable, you can easily begin to worship it. Yeah. It's, it's something of that same sort of asceticism that starts off with a good intention yep. to to protect against something really, really good and to hedge it, to protect it, to create fences around it that's good, but then ultimately can lead to the wrong end of, oh, I can't enjoy it. The the space that you talked about of thinking something is, is bad when it's actually not. Right. That's mm. correct. So it would be those four pillars then. That's mm. what I would say need to fill out when we think about sex and what it's designed for. We need to realize that it is there to consummate, that is to make one relationship and one only special mm. above all relationships save ours with Christ. Mm. It's there for procreation. It is mm -hmm. the way in which we fulfill the social uh, the, the mandate to go out and to subdue the earth and to mm. fill it with believers. 
it is about love, that engaging in this activity increases our joy in one another, our connection to one another, and our resiliency with one another. And it's about pleasure. It's about mm-hmm. actually pursuing something that is good and right. You know, God gives us sex and sexuality in the same sentence, in the same area in Genesis 1, where he gives every good thing to eat. Mm. Now, if you think about this, God could have said, here's how you procreate. You procreate through an activity that feels like needles. (laughs) He could have. That was with it. And if he had done that, how much infidelity would there be? Zero. Very little. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Instead, Mm. in an act of goodness... He makes it something that is incredibly enjoyable and pleasurable, and that's before the fall. Yeah. Right? Mm. So sometimes people get into this idea that the reason sex is pleasurable, the way, the reason why I enjoy it so much is something to do with sin. It's not to do with sin. It's mm. really not. Before the fall, God made it to be something enjoyable that would help to then fulfill the earth, right, or to fill the earth. Yeah. So those four pillars. Those four pillars. Yep. Consummation procreation, love, and pleasure are the four pillars that we look through biblically as to the what and why of sexuality. Josh, that's a beautiful overview, and it's. It, I don't think you can listen to that without feeling the weight of the selfishness that we sometimes bring to that. Yes. And so I think that's a good question to ask is, how, like, let's, let's go off script here and, and say, okay, how would you encourage and comfort Someone who's struggling with the selfishness that so easily taints each of our intentions and desires when it comes to this beautiful picture you've just painted. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's part of what sin is, Mm -hmm. is it's us turned in on ourselves. Yes. And so I would grieve with them. I I hate it when my sin impacts me, and I hate it when it infects me so that I become selfish and I'm not willing to sacrifice for my friends, family, family fellow believers, and I begin to listen to the lie of Satan that it's up to me to fulfill myself, not up to the Lord, hmm. and for me to lean on him to feel fulfilled. Sure. And so that that grieves me, and I would want to grieve with them. And then say, now hmm. let us bathe ourselves in God's grace that we don't have to walk around in shame and guilt. Hmm. We don't have to wear it like a scarlet letter. It is exactly the place where God loves to walk in, redeem, and say, you are forgiven. Mm. You are free to walk. You are unfettered, my friend. Mm. Go in grace, and go in grace and pursue holiness, Mm. right? So now that you have been forgiven and you've washed yourself in forgiveness and praise the Lord and thank the Lord for that forgiveness, I'm now free to more and more be like Christ, Mm. which is also to say that there will be times when I will not be like him. Mm. The patterns of sin in our life are likely to be the way that we sin in the future as yeah. well as in the past. But nonetheless, now yeah. being forgiven, mm. man, let's let's get after it and let's really try and make this something where we use our sexuality for others and we shepherd others' sexuality more than we care about or place emphasis on our own. Yeah, that's so fundamentally paradigm shifting if you think about it. And that's something the the framework that you just created also cuts across whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're old and yep. and married, not old, that's not whether you're a senior. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably the better way to say that. 
or whether you are uh, it, by yourself, you're not in a in a relationship in and an adult in some sort of celibate fashion. That's you know? right. I don't know if that's a category I can even bring up right now, but no, no, no. yeah. I mean, I, I, you're always a sexual shepherd. Yeah. Right, and mm. and your goal is to shepherd other people's sexuality mm. more than to focus on your own. Yeah, that, that that's just the way Scripture always tells us that we're supposed to be mm. focused on helping our brothers, and mm. as to sin, we focus on ourselves; as to need, we focus on others. Amen. Right, and so we focus on ourselves when we fall and and we say we're sorry, and then we go out and we try and serve. Now, none of us do that perfectly. This is not a you know, if you're not doing that, somehow you're some sub-Christian. We all sin in word and thought and deed every day and every hour of day, and if we're honest, probably every minute of the day, hmm. right? And and we need to run to God for His grace and mercy. But having been washed by the blood of Jesus, we're now free hmm. to serve others and to shepherd their sexuality more than to try and get our own sexual needs and desires met. Yeah, and it, it's it's also an area where we might be hesitant to consider from a level of passion how God cares and desires his people just because of some of the, the strange ways that could come out in, in the practice of thinking about our Lord's desire and excitement for his people. Right. But the reality is is that if, if this is an analogy that Jesus uses in his relationship towards his people, his desire to be with them, his yep. desire to stay committed to them, to love them every day of our existence, uh, even before we knew us and into the foundations of eternity and beyond, then the reality is is that our Savior's love will outpace our sinfulness. That's right. And it will make us into the people that we should be when we focus on that yep. as the key to becoming people who can be faithful sexual shepherds That's of right. other people. That's right. If you look to your own effort and your own humanity, mm-hmm. as, especially as your first step, mm-hmm. man, the only thing you're going to do is get sucked into a black hole. Yeah. You just are. If you look at the cross and Christ and what he's done for you and his desire for you and, and how he's redeemed and renewed you and even the idea of sex and sexuality and therefore given you this new role to be a responsible sexual shepherd, now I've got what I need in order that I might put one foot in front of the other and try sure. and more and more live up to my call. Absolutely. Well, Josh, I think that's what we have time for today in terms of our episode on the positives of what Scripture is going to present to us of of what a positive view of our sexuality looks like. Next time, we'd love to continue to invite you to join us as we think about what what does it look like for us as we see in Scripture a place where people lived with that consumerist sort of selfish view of sexuality, and does Scripture speak to that? So we hope that you'll join us again next time as we seek to do that and explore that. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.